Welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. This is your host, Tony Award-winning set designer, John Arnone. In this podcast series, I'll be one-on-one with designers, playwrights, directors, and actors, and we'll be discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the show. Gower Champion was born on June 22, 1919, in Geneva, Illinois. He was the son of John W. Champion and Beatrice Carlyle. He was raised in Los Angeles, California. During the late 1930s and early 1940s, Champion worked on Broadway as a solo dancer and choreographer. In the early 1950s, Gower and March Champion, his wife, made seven film musicals, Mr. Music in 1950 with Bing Crosby, Showboat with Howard Keel in 1951, 1952's Lovely to Look At, Give a Girl a Break, 1953 with Debbie Reynolds and Bob Fosse, Jupiter's Darling in 1955 with Esther Williams, and Three for the Show in 1955 with Betty Grable and Jack Lemmon. Also in the 1950s, the husband and wife team starred in a number of TV variety shows culminating in the Marge and Gower Champion show. In 1959, Marge and Gower Champion ended their professional dancing partnership. In 1948, Gower Champion won the first of eight Tony Awards for his staging of Lind and Ear, the show that introduced Carol Channing to New York City theater audiences. In the 1960s, he directed a number of Broadway hits that put him at the top of his profession. On Broadway at the Martin Beck Theater, Bye Bye Birdie opened on April 14, 1960 and ran until October 7, 1961. It starred Cheetah Rivera and Dick Van Dyke. The musical Carnival opened on April 13, 1961 at the Imperial Theater on Broadway and closed on January 1, 1963. Hello Dolly, starring Carol Channing, ran an unprecedented 2,844 performances at the St. James Theater. I Do, I Do, opened on Broadway on December 5, 1966 at the 46th Street Theater and closed on June 15, 1968. Robert Preston, who starred with Mary Martin, won a Tony Award for his performance. Sugar opened at the Majestic Theater on Broadway on April 9, 1972. It closed on June 23, 1973. Robert Morris and Tony Roberts starred based on the film of Some Like It Hot. Irene at the Minskoff Theater opened on March 13, 1973 and closed on September 7, 1974. It starred Debbie Reynolds and it went on to play 605 performances. Mac and Mabel at the Majestic Theater opened on October 6, 1974 and closed on November 30, 1974. Bernadette Peters and Robert Preston starred. Rockabye Hamlet opened on February 17, 1976 at the Minskoff Theater on Broadway and closed on February 21, 1976. 
The Act, the Broadway musical with Liza Minnelli, who won a Tony Award for her performances, had music by John Kander and lyrics by Fred Ebb. It set a record for the highest ticket price ever paid on Broadway of $25 a seat. 42nd Street, the Broadway musical, opened at the Winter Garden Theater on August 25, 1980. It ran for an unprecedented 3,486 performances, eight and one-half years. It closed on January 8, 1989. Gower Champion died on the morning of the opening of 42nd Street, the Broadway musical, on August 25, 1980. Tony Award nominee Larry Carpenter is a theater and television director and producer who has won four DGA Awards and seven Daytime Emmy Awards for his work on One Life to Live, General Hospital, and As the World Turns. Larry has taught at the Juilliard School of Drama, New York University, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, Rutgers University, and Marymount Manhattan College. He served as artistic director at Milford's American Stage Festival, associate artistic director at the American Shakespeare Theater and MacArthur Theater, managing director at the Lion Theater Company, and general manager at the Harold Klurman Theater in New York City. Today, Larry joins us to discuss the life and career of eight-time Tony Award winner, Mr. Gower Champion, and his work as associate director on the Broadway productions of A Broadway Musical, The Act with Liza Minnelli, Rockabye Hamlet, and 42nd Street, the Broadway musical, which ran for an unprecedented 3,486 performances. Please welcome my good friend, Mr. Larry Carpenter, to I Am the Space Where I Am. Larry Carpenter, welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. <laughs> Carol Channing said, when I worked with Gower on Dolly, it was like he was Rodan and I was the thinker. He had the most remarkable talent I ever saw. He designed around me down to the smallest detail. He would walk to the back of the theater, then come forward and say, move your left foot there on that line and then stay still in fifth position. He had that kind of eye. There was a reason for everything he did. That's true. That's so true. <laughs> Gower actually talked about Dolly a lot during our, our years together. His relationship with Channing was fascinating. He had gone away after opening, after the huge hit it was when it opened, and came back, I guess, a couple of months later. He took some time off, went to Greece. He came back, and uh, she had changed several things. And um, he, he went back and said, I, I don't understand, Carol. What, 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 what are you doing? And she said, you don't understand, Gower. I have become Gower champion, you know? And, and he, he thought that was very funny. He said, but, but she put it back the way it was supposed to be. So he loved that show. He loved doing that show. I think what that calls into question 
is the idea of instinct versus writing it all down, pre-prepared direction, pre-prepared ideas. You work so closely with him on Rockabye Hamlet, a Broadway musical, The Act, and ultimately 42nd Street. I'm wondering, is there anything you can say to address that? I think he always had a plan. I saw him begin a bunch of things. And he, even if it was the most sketchy of plans, you know, there's he sort of thought it was this sometimes. Other times he knew exactly what he wanted and he put it, he put it on the stage and it never changed or changed a little bit here and there. But sometimes when he wasn't exactly sure how it wanted to go, he would stand it up and then smack it around. He was tireless at pulling things apart, putting them back together, looking at them, pulling them back apart, putting them back together. And that's how he learned to throw things away in the process was a great luxury for him. And he, and he used that. I think we need to back up a little bit and give a little bit of a history lesson, how the two of you all met. Pure happenstance, total happenstance. My wife, Julia McKenzie, bumped into an old boyfriend of hers on the street who had just had an interview with Gower Champion to be an assistant. And he didn't have the skill set that I do. He said that he, he needed a sword fighter and a, a somebody who knew about Shakespeare and somebody who knew about musical theater, all of which was in my skill set. So I called up Helen Nickerson, who was the general manager uh, for David Merrick at the time. I said, I, I have these skills. I know that this happened. I had a 15-minute interview with Gower, and he said, okay, let's do it. That's how we met. That sounds more like a knee-jerk instinct response to you. Well, he, he had he had very specific needs. He needed a sword fighter. He needed, you know, he needed somebody who had Shakespeare background. He used to call me professor. And it took us a while to get to know each other. But working on Rockabye Hamlet was a fascinating experience because he was a little bit out of water as well with, with a rock opera. I'm assuming this was in 1970. Five, if Rockabye Hamlet opened in February of 1976, yeah, it was he, so he would have been around uh, 56 years old at that time mm -hmm. because he was born in Geneva, Illinois on June 22nd, 1919. Wow. And then was shipped out to California where he was raised and brought up. He started off as a dancer. Yes. And in the 30s and 40s, he worked on Broadway as a solo dancer. It wasn't until the uh, 50s that he and Marge started working on film, uh, dancing in film, but also in the late, uh, in the 50s, started doing television shows, including their own show, the Marge and Gower Champion show that they alternated with Jack Benny. But Correct. Clearly, his background is a hoofer uh, and then a choreographer coming up with his own ideas. His imagination took hold and Marge and Gower distinguished themselves for innovation and freshness and ingenuity that no one had seen before. Were you able to distinguish in terms of his instincts as a choreographer versus his instincts as a director. Was there a, a marriage of the two? I'd say they had different lives. 
years when he was working with, let's say the principals, not the chorus, but the principals, he allowed a lot, a lot more latitude. And, you know, he said, let's, let's, let's try this, let's try that. When he was working with the dancing, the choreography, he would come up with a step or a series of steps and he knew how ultimately it was all going to go, but he would work on little sections and then he would put it together. But he knew. He knew it was a puzzle for him that he'd worked out in advance. What exactly the steps were would come later, but he knew what the general movement was. He knew what the story of the number was going to be. He'd worked that out. Gower did say, and this addresses what we're talking about right now, the choreographer is more dictatorial than the director. The very nature of his work requires him to tell the dancers exactly what to do. As a director, you point the actor in a direction and let him carry it from there. Yes, I would say that's very, very apt. He was less conversant with the way to talk to an actor than he was to, to talk to a dancer. I would be sent away occasionally with a scene. One, I think, because of time constraints. But giving them the latitude to discover was both a, a question of the clock is ticking, it's a Broadway show, hello, let's go. And not that he wasn't really good with actors. You know, he, he knew what he wanted. He just uh, sometimes wasn't exactly clear about how to get it. Part of that quote includes him saying this, the choreographer requires that his dancers be expressive in dance terms, while the director working with actors tries to elicit inner feelings of character through both speech and gesture. Uh -huh. To me, it seems he very clearly was sensitive to the needs of the actor, how to approach them, how to address them, to elicit what he thought was most appropriate for that moment. It's interesting that you say you were sometimes sent away with some of the actors to work on scenes while he was working with the dancers. What strikes me is how colossal all of these projects were, starting off with Rockabye Hamlet. That was my first show with him. Most of the principals were already cast and I got in for the chorus auditions, which were their own zoo because it was a rock and roll musical. So everybody came out of the woodwork. We're talking about Cliff Jones here. Cliff had done this. It was called 1492. It was done in Canada at a festival. And it had some of the same people who came to New York with it. But then it, he got this great bunch of people that turned out to be, you know, stars. Meatloaf, Beverly D'Angelo, Larry Marshall, Alan Weeks, Lita Galloway. I mean, they're all these great, really wonderful rock and rollers. And he put that together with a really sexy bunch of kids to do the dancing. And Tony Stevens, who is a wonderful choreographer in his own right. And, uh, and we went to work. The scenery was Kurt Lundell, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh, Joseph Alissi did the costumes and Jules Fisher did the lights. I'm trying to, to get at this relationship between Cliff Jones and Gower. This being, as you said, a rock and roll musical. Gordon Harrell who was the music director? Yes, he was. Said this about Rockabye Hamlet. He said, Gower's vocabulary was not really in rock. He let us know right away that he was not going to be able to give us much input. This is out of context, Larry. So I'm thinking what he's referring to is the music, not 
the overall concept for the piece. Yeah, no, he was talking about the music. I mean, Gower was uh, very frank about the fact that, I mean, he was in love with the, the score. He, he thought it was great. And he and the choice of Gordon Harrell and putting the band on stage as a rock concert, he thought that was all great. That was his idea of making it be a big rock concert that supported the telling of Hamlet. He knew when he didn't like something, he knew when uh, the tone or the or the orchestration of something wasn't what he wanted to go after in terms of staging and dance. And there was a there was a lot of negotiation there. But in terms of being for him being able to say, you know, this is this artist or that that's this artist, I want it to sound like this. He, he didn't have that uh, vocabulary. With Cliff Jones, I would think that his relationship with Gower had to be critical. Oh, it was very close. They were very close. Cliff was not shy. You know, he would say, I like this. I don't like this. What about that? But, you know, there was a lot of input. And Gower, what, what's good about Gower is that he listened. You know, he listened and he synthesized what was coming at him and he, he would make a decision. He had a very strong hand on his production. He was the director. He was the person who was in control of everything. It's interesting that we had on the horizon a certain British composer who was working away at a little musical called Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. My theory is, is that Rock by Hamlet was about five years too early, but it might have been an enjoyable life had it waited. And it was just one of those shows that was uh, before its time. Innovation can be a double-edged sword, as we both know. We do. <laughs> In a year, you all started working on a Broadway musical. After George Faison, I think, was let, let go. go. Yeah. Gower had worked with Charles Strauss on Bye Bye Birdie. Right. And also with Lee Adams, who was also Bye Bye Birdie. William Brown, who wrote the book, wrote The Wiz. I did not know that. Broadway musical is a, a rather sensitive piece. Maybe you can give us some background on it. Well, he called me... He He'd begun work on a Broadway musical, and Rockabye Hamlet was a pretty bonding experience for us. We were mentor and student, I guess is the best way to put it. But he did value my opinion. So he said, come take a look at it. And then he watched the show again with me the next night. And we, we talked afterwards. He said, so? I, I said, I, I, he said, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't see how this becomes anything. He couldn't fix it. It was a deeply flawed musical with a, I mean, it would never be done today in the, these days of woke. This was a response to their production of Golden Boy. It was a deeply flawed musical. It was all over the place. It had, it had musical numbers that didn't belong there, that were confusing about why they were there in the first place. I actually don't understand how it ever made it to Broadway. Larry Marshall jumped from Rockabye Hamlet to a Broadway musical. Right. Did he right. not? Yes, he did. Uh, it's about a, a white theater producer trying to take advantage of a serious play written by an African-American and turn it into a musical. All of the people that worked on it were white. So even the premise for it is a bit of a lie. It's it's It was... It's just unfortunate. Uh, you know, it was that's the height of disrespect, I think, for the black community and capitalize on it as a as a musical. And nobody on stage looked comfortable in it. Well, even Gower didn't take a credit as director, choreographer. He 
took a credit as production supervised by. Right, right. Well, he only worked on it for, I believe, a couple of weeks. I was there off and on. Uh, I think I saw it twice. We had lunch once, you know, he said, I can't fix this. I don't know what to do with it. And he was you know, on it and off it in no time. I'd never seen a show on Broadway that unfortunate. The one thing that we skipped over, what was thought to be one of the most exciting sword fighting sequences ever staged on Broadway, which is all due to you in the sword fight between uh, Hamlet and Laertes, which even I remember to this day gasping <laughs> at a few times. I know you created it, but how did you go about that how, with, with Gower? He said, go away. He said, go away. Here are the swords, go away. Um, it was, um, first of all, I had, I had two great people who were willing to take risks and do a lot of the sword work and learn. Neither of them had any sword experience before that. Well, this was Larry Marshall. Yeah. And Philip Kazanoff. The gestation process of the fight was that we did... We did a fight. I took it out onto the floor. We showed it to him. He said, that's great. More. He kept encouraging the fight to grow and it, it grew and grew. And, and then, of course, he would shape how the fight moved. It was, I was a kid. I was a sword fighter. I, you know, I said, let's make a sword fight. You know, it'll be fun. Um, and we had a lot of fun. You know, it's also, it's also probably worth saying that I also was in charge of all of the, this, this was a day when all of the microphones and it was a rock and roll show were cabled. They all went back to amplifiers and, and he had so much staging that I was given four roadies and I was the guy who would actually work out the spaghetti mess, you know, cause he would do all of this. And then, then we would have like a moment to unwind all these things and get the microphones to the next, the next person that was going to do that. That was its own kind of Rubik's Cube. So he gave me a lot of responsibility on that show. I was very grateful to him. There was like a drawbridge that uh -huh. went out into the house, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah, there was, it was like a foreground extension. We said, okay, let's take it out there. And then Laertes plunges to his death. In uh, some of the reviews, this climactic moment is almost always mentioned as being singled out for the expertise that you brought to it. And also just in terms of storytelling, moving the dramatic plot forward and uh, to its climactic ends. You talk about the microphones. Speaking of the mistress of microphones herself, Miss Liza Minnelli. Yes. <laughs> the act actually preceded a Broadway musical. Yeah. Gower said this, quote, I wouldn't presume, I wouldn't dream of directing and performing in the same show. It's sheer egocentric madness. Yes. <laughs> and then, lo and, and behold. And then exit Barry Nelson and enter Gower Champion. It's worth saying, I think, that you know, Barry Nelson went away to shoot a film and he was away for, I think, a month. So Gower just stepped in for a month with Liza to, to, uh, to help a friend out. And that was pretty amazing to be sitting in the house and giving notes to Liza Minnelli and Gower Champion. Let's talk about that, uh, how, the, how Gower got involved in the act. I, I, know, that, uh, I know that he was on it. 
I was working at the time as the managing director of this little theater company on 42nd Street called The Lion. You know, we would talk occasionally on the phone and said, yeah, I'm, because he went into doctor. I know he doctored the show and work with Liza. And she really loved him. So that was great. And so that when Barry Nelson was needed to go away, I believe she asked for Gower. I have to think that given Marge and Gower uh, working on Mr. Music and Showboat and Lovely to Look At and Jupiter's Darling in the 50s, her father had to be present, not only present, but had to have been a major player, Vincent Minnelli, of course, right, at right. that time. Yes. Of the great choreographers and directors of the 20th century, Bob Fosse, Tommy Toon, Jerome Robbins, Michael Bennett, Agnes DeBille, and arguably Twyla Tharp. Uh, did Gower have any Congress with these people? Did they ever know each other, I wonder, or talk? Not that I know of. Yeah. Not that I know. No, he was, Gower was a very private man. He was a, he was a loner. And I knew him after he and Marge parted company. So I'd only met Marge occasionally, but he was, uh, he, he basically kept to himself. I mean, I think he ran with producers in New York and, and stuff like that. He was a very political guy. He was a very Hollywood guy. You know, I'm a star and I should be out there with the stars. Well, the, when you hear people describe him, they always talk about how glamorous he was, how distinct his manner was in terms of being a gentleman and always being dressed to the nines. And he, he sort of sounded like cross between Fred Astaire and um, Gene Kelly. Yeah. Waiting to go on, waiting for their cue. No, he was always, his performance, let's call it a performance because we all perform our lives. His performance was very elegant, very hail fellow, well met, very funny, cracked a lot of jokes, and then would walk out the door and be very private. So he had the rehearsal performance public persona and he had the, the private persona. I got to know him really well on 42nd Street. Harold Klurman dubbed Gower Champion the Tyrone Guthrie of musical comedy direction. Sir Tyrone Guthrie was the major theatrical influence, not only in Great Britain, but also in Stratford, Ontario, and the United States with the right. Guthrie Theatre. Right. Sir Tyrone Guthrie and Tanya Maseevich were the go-to people in terms of innovation, pioneering, uh, vision, for Harold Klurman to say Gower Champion is the Tyrone Guthrie of musical comedy direction is unparalleled. It's beyond a compliment. Right. I have never heard any other critic talk about another choreographer director, not right. even Michael Bennett, not even Bob Fosse, maybe Agnes DeMille. Gower was thought of almost as this god, this legend in his own time. It's odd that so much distance has taken place. I mean, that here we are in 2023, we're getting ready to talk about a musical that ran 3,486 performances. I mean, certainly A Chorus Line, certainly Phantom of the Opera, right? you know, what have you will always have their place historically. But just in terms of size, commitment, vision, what comes before or after 42nd Street. You were his associate director on this. 
Yeah, yeah. I, we, we went to Washington together. What is the bridge or what is the segue into 42nd Street? A phone call. <laughs> you know, it, it was, I, I had this whole other career. I was an off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway general manager, director, guy doing the occasional directing gig out of town. And he called up one day and he said, I'm working on this project. I need some help. Will you come and be a part of it? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to go to Washington for six weeks. I said, sure, why not? Uh, kismet, pure kismet. Where was Gower uh, in the development of the project once you had joined it? Uh, was was it still in script and putting the music together? Had he started rehearsing? Was there a workshop? Uh, uh, we were in the design process. We were in a pr- process with uh, Robin Wagner for the set. It was my great pleasure to get to know Theron Musser as the light designer. And of course, Theone Aldridge, the great Theone Aldridge. Those sessions were fascinating to me because Gower was all, all over those sessions. You know, he didn't say, oh, that's pretty, that's great. You know, he had, he had comments. He knew what he liked. He was very involved with how uh, costumes moved for dance. He was very focused on whether or not that would do and what the shoes were and how, how they take taps. And, and, and could we, you know, could the tap shoes get off stage and the real shoes get on stage. But those were all questions that got worked out in advance. He was still working on order of what order all the musical numbers came in. So we were working on on that. I met Mike Stewart then because uh, he uh, that was at that point that the book went from book by Mike Stewart to lead-ins and crossovers by Mike Stewart and Mark Bramble because there was so little book. So that those were the days there. And I was involved with, of course, Jerry Orbach. You don't audition Jerry Orbach. You just hire him. You just hire Tammy Grimes. But I, I saw some of the principal auditions. And then, of course, I saw all the chorus auditions, which were great fun. Working with Tammy Grimes and Jerry Orbach, we don't have those actors anymore. No. We just don't. Right. Not with that pedigree. Not with that pedigree, but not with that talent. I know. know. I know. I know. And and it was uh, it was so much fun to, you know, to watch Gower with them. You know, they just laugh and carry on and hoot and holler and, and it would be a scene, you know. So it was a pleasure to watch the pros work with the pro. How did that work with the Harry Warren and Al Dubin songs? I mean, putting that together. You said that uh, ultimately the lead-ins and the crossovers, that's how Michael Stewart and Mark Bramble were credited. But who was the driving force to shape this piece? Gower. Gower, yeah. He was very logical. He said, this does that, this does that, this number's this, this is the big number. And the first act got rearranged before rehearsal a lot. The second act was never touched. The second act we went into rehearsal with was the second act we played opening night. The first act changed all the time. In Washington, it changed every, the order changed every two or three days. Mm-hmm. And I was script boy on that. So this was before computers. So I was in, in the office in the opera house in Washington, typing new pages, new orders. That was my job. What strikes me about 42nd Street, the overall impression of it, is that it somehow married Gower's relationship to the 50s film musicals. I agree. I agree. It was right in his wheelhouse. 
He knew exactly what it wanted to be. He seemed to be shooting from a script behind a camera, moving constantly, moving the camera. I mean, techniques that Busby Berkeley and Vincent Minnelli, who were very famous for in terms of of innovation. Gower seemed to embrace that. When you look at Give a Girl a Break or Three for the Show or, you know, all of the films that he did for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the accumulation of those experiences and that knowledge is what fed 42nd Street to a degree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It is... uh, He was pushing himself. Well, he was sick. Um, so uh, he was pushing himself a lot because he he knew this show. He never gave up. We changed the last fix was when we came back from Washington. Merrick, uh, uh, I think I could tell the story. Merrick is gone. I was in the little office, stage right, typing changes, and Merrick used to hang out there sitting in the corner, mumbling to himself. He said, it's too good. I said, what's too good? He said, the word, it's too good. He said, I'm going to put it back at rehearsal. And he did. It was clever, clever, clever showman. But that's when Gower, it's one of my favorite memories ever of him creating Go Into Your Dance with those five girls. That was just a conversation of tappers that you took what they could do. And he said, they're on their way to lunch. These are girls, showgirls on their way to lunch. That's just straight up a 50s musical number. And he just made it up one afternoon. And it replaced We're in the Money which was the big number in the show, in the nine o'clock number, was in the 820 spot for a long time in Washington. And he kept, I kept saying, Gower, it's, it's the best number in the first half. So he finally got mad at me and then he moved it. I said, now I got a hole. I said, you fix it. And he did. He fixed it in two hours, which was astonishing. You spoke some about David Merrick. There are many a story, not just on 42nd Street, but when David Merrick would show up and Gower would disappear just to avoid him and would not come back on set until he was sure that David Merrick had left. Did you have to troubleshoot between Gower and David Merrick? I kept my eye on David. So one day we're in the opera house and the the loading door opens and 12 pastel colored wheelchairs come in the door and a rolled up drop. And I said, what's that? And David said, that's the new number. And so I said, oh. And so I, uh, I found Gower who was out in the house and I said, you know, there's a, a new number that's just come in the loading dock. Do you know about this? He said, I don't know anything about this. So, so I, you know, those are the kinds of things it's like just, keeping my eye open for, you know, the big surprise. But it's true. David was a tough producer. He was all over everything all the time. And Gower wanted to stick with his vision and not have David harassing him. Well, with so much responsibility and also assuming he had something of when he left the theater, his own life, just to protect himself and to protect his work as the director choreographer, that kind of distraction would not be in his best interests anyway. Right. You know? No, it's it, it was it wasn't helpful. You know, <laughs> you asking me to do this has sort of um, made me take a trip down memory lane, and it's a long time ago. It was a long time ago. But my basic realization was about who Gower was as a a direct. Uh, I don't like the word artist, 
but as a really first class director choreographer and how many skills and many different skills he visual choreography staging directing in which he he makes a big distinction between staging and directing which i think is true but just how how all of that operated in his brain at the same time to be able to handle all of the input that you have when you're directing a broadway show i mean i directed a broadway show it's terrifying there's so much money on the line and you're so exposed that you need to keep your balance and gower was very balanced and you know i've never i never saw him angry i never saw him confused i saw him know that he didn't know and that pursue what he didn't know uh, he was good at knowing what he didn't know and he would say i don't know and i think that's very important and so he he was an expert at administrating a huge project and keeping it going forward and at the 30,000 foot level too, taking a look at the structure of 42nd Street's first act over and over and over again and trying this and trying that, moving stuff around and, and doing, doing tweaks here and there because he didn't think it was right. And then he finally got it right. And he was great. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a charming, good boss. How long was he with it in previews before his physical condition had to absent himself from previews. What happened was David brought the show back into New York and, and put us back into rehearsal for a week. And of course they used the, the excuse that we couldn't get into the theater. And, you know, the kids were very frustrated. Then we were in previews for, we had one preview that Merrick spotted a press person in the house and there was a full house sitting in the theater and he canceled the preview because he saw press and then we did the next two previews i believe and that's when gower went into the hospital and then we played another i believe another three or four previews and then opened and i was i was in charge which you know it's a little terrifying but you know what was your responsibility to the show your or how were you employed after the show opened and uh of course gower had passed away uh the morning of the opening night how long were you employed what were your what was your job description i was gower's assistant which made it associate assistant i was his guy and he was gone and now it was going to be david's show the opening night, I call it the opening night wake. Neil Simon sat with David and penned a couple of uh, ideas for the quarter to nine scene on a cocktail napkin. And, and I was given the napkin from, by David and said, here, put this in. So I went home and I went, this is not, this is not one idea. It's three different ideas. So I studiously took these three ideas and broke them out, did a memo, sent it to David. And so about two weeks after we opened, I got a call from the company manager, who's a friend of mine, Louise Bayer. And she said, what'd you do? I, I said, I, what do you mean what I did? She said, you're fired. I said, great. It was, it was really a relief to, to be, you know, because Gower had died. It was, uh, it was a period of grief. And then a couple of months later, I got, I got the job as an artistic director of a theater in New Hampshire. So it was all meant. I suppose. 
but it was it was a sad time. It was a very, very difficult time. Um, you know, and David kept, you know, while Gower was in the hospital dying, David kept trying to change the the show, do this, do that. He said, I don't agree, David, I'll put it in. So we would put it in. I'll end up on the deck after the show, and David would be walking around in a circle on the deck, and then he'd come up to me and he'd say, take it out. So we take it out and we go back to the original. It, it, it was a heady time for a young man, but it was a great learning experience, and, and I, I value it. Dick Van Dyke, when I auditioned for Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway, Gower Champion said, you've got the job. I said, Mr. Champion, I can't dance. He said, we will teach you what you need to know. <laughs> Larry, did Gower teach you what you needed to know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I walked away from my association with him, a completely different uh, theater person, and I'm grateful to him. Wonderful. Larry, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a wonderful experience to hear firsthand your experiences with Gower. And I'm sure the people that tune in to listen to it will find this a great entertainment and a great education. And I just wanted to thank you for being with us on I Am The Space Where I Am. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. We've run out of time. I'd like to thank our guest and you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us for new episodes featuring designers, playwrights, actors, and directors discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. This is your host, John Arnone, for I Am the Space Where I Am.